Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. You know, I've had people say, weren't you Gabrielle, that volleyball player? I was like, well, actually, funny enough, I'm still Gabby. I'm here. Check, check, check. One, two, three. Let's do this. We finally meet each other. To truly love somebody, you have to understand who you are in order to provide yourself with what is healthy. For real? real. It's the same thing for empathy. In order for me to be empathetic to anybody else around me, I have to be empathetic to myself. I'm all yours. (laughs) (laughs) We should have brought some happy hour drinks. I don't know what we're doing, but I was like, oh, I'll do it. You didn't really explain it, but it's cool. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the next chapter with Prim Saripapat. You were like, life after football. And I was like, all right, cool. On this show, you can have your cake and eat it too. There's levels to it, right? So when I was seven years old, I wasn't the the best player on the team. Um, You know, that through the years, then I became the best player on the team. And then it was recognized as I was the best player on the team. And then I started to be um, celebrated and put on a pedestal as the best player on the team. And then I got to high school and same thing. Then it's just another level. And then you get, um, you know, you get scholarships to schools to play football and then you're put on a pedestal again. And it just reaffirms this identity that you're building and really has nothing to do other than with football. Um, So everything I was doing off the field, who I really was, what my passions were, what I really enjoyed. Like I I played Legos. I still play Legos to this day, you know, and not many people know that. Um, not that I share it, but not that I share it. <laughs> it's just the fact that there's, there's, there's a, a whole other side to who I am as a human being, right? Um, Welcome so, to yeah, the next this. chapter. I'm your host, Prims Ripapat. This week's guest is former Seattle Seahawks wide receiver, Doug Baldwin. Doug Baldwin goes in for the touchdown. Doug played at Stanford University, and despite going undrafted, got picked up by Seattle where he would go on to spend his entire eight-year NFL career with the Seahawks, making back-to-back Super Bowl appearances in 2013 and 14, winning one, making two Pro Bowls, and finishing as a Seahawks' third all-time leader in receptions and yards. Here's Baldwin, smaller target. I've known Doug for several years, and the one thing I know about him is he doesn't just sit down with anybody and open up. As you'll hear later in this episode, the moment I found out this was his first and only interview he's given since announcing his retirement, I was pretty overwhelmed with gratitude that he trusts me in sharing his story. So when that was removed from my life, really trying to figure out how I fit into the world and truly who I was. I made the trip out to Seattle last October, which is when this was recorded. And we did it at his favorite restaurant, which might explain the ambient noise in the background. As I mentioned in my introductory episode, which if you haven't, I highly encourage you to listen to it because it'll give greater context about this series and also my interviewing process. But the five key areas I'll explore with Doug are, number one, his childhood in Florida and how he first developed a relationship with football at six years old. Two, 
how Doug's identity became so deeply intertwined with football, making it that much harder to leave the game. Three, the big events that occur over the course of his 20 plus years in football, including a slew of injuries towards the end. Four, his retirement. We actually read his entire retirement letter, the one he tweeted out last year. And you'll want to tune in for that because it's an extremely powerful moment. Lastly, we'll talk about mental health, including the depression he experienced shortly after retirement. And just to be clear, I don't necessarily hit these five areas in chronological order because that's just not the natural flow of any conversation. It's more of a guideline for me, knowing those are the five key elements I want to touch on with my guests at some point during the interview. All right, that's enough for me. Without further ado, let's bring in today's guest. Ladies and gentlemen, Doug Baldwin. What is this? And we begin the interview with a little surprise. Happy birthday. Thank you. Did you plan this? I did. I intended to do that while we were filming, and I don't... Oh, we are filming great. (laughs) You give me ice cream and cake, I'm good. Cat's out of the bag. Wait, you didn't do a wish. Mm -mm. You're not going to do a wish? Nope. You're just going to go... You're just going to keep eating it while it's on fire still. (laughs) No. Did you make a wish, at least? I did. You did? I had to think about it first. Okay. But I didn't While want to wait. eating the cake. Right, I didn't want to wait to eat the cake. Cake's too good to eat. What'd you wish for? What kind of question is that? <laughs> so you're expecting me to slip up in this conversation? I am not. This is all about being open. It's all about being open. You gave me cake, so I'll be as open as I possibly can. <laughs> By the way, I'm not sharing my cake. I know you're not. I was actually, I was about to ask. I'm like, clearly this dude's not going to offer. Do you want some for real? Say, no, because now you've like dug into it. I mean, it, there's other sides. And now there's like wax all over the chocolate. There so, not. And ice cream. Because I wanted to set the tone for the interview and say, on this show, the next chapter with Prim Seripipat, you can have your cake and eat it too. Ooh, I like that. You're welcome. One thing that I want to say off the top is that the last time we saw each other, that was in 2016, and um, I was interviewing you for an NFL countdown piece, and that was super fun. But a lot has happened in three years. You know, you were um, still playing football. You were with the Seahawks. You were engaged, weren't you? Were we? Because I think we might have been engaged at the same time. You were engaged in 2016. And then I was um, still in broadcasting. I was at ESPN. And then since then, you've hung up the cleats, no longer at Seahawks. I'm kind of making a career transition. I'm no longer at ESPN. We're both married. We're both married. The first time we met was um, you came on First Take and I happened to be hosting it. And I remember our conversation. The dialogue of First Take is very, as we all know, surface opinionated you went a more um subdued look but you look very nice thank you i appreciate that yeah so, let's uh a little let's bit more out. loud very sports heavy he announces but the one thing i remember when during that conversation was um i was like you know what doug is different he just seems different and you seemed very introspective and thoughtful afterwards i decided to reach out to you you know to do that that piece on you about mindfulness and meditation, how you use mental imagery to help your game. Is that how you would characterize yourself? As introspective? Introspective, thoughtful. <laughs> These are all very nice deep. compliments. 
I don't know how I would describe myself. Uh, I like to learn. Mm. You know, I, um, life teaches me lessons, so I just I, I want to pay attention to them as they as they come to me. Mm. What What have you learned since 2016? Since that time <laughs> that we saw each other, I feel like so much. You so want me to give you has, bullet points because there, there's a, however a ton. you want. Yeah, I know. I know that's a very loaded question. It is. It is. It's like when you first see somebody, you're like, "Oh, what's going on? How you doing? You know, what's new in life?" And people typically you're not ready are like, for that answer. "No, I know." You're not ready yeah. for that answer. So everybody just does the, "Oh, not much." Yeah. And then back of your head, you're like, "No, there's a lot going on." A, a reel of things going yeah. on. No, I mean just to keep it in general, I've I've learned a lot about myself. You know, and um. There's a lot of stuff woven into that. Again, it's a loaded question, but um, you're going through the process of getting married and then, um, you know, really coming to grips with my mortality uh, in a lot of ways uh, as it pertains to football. Um, and then obviously retiring, you know, all those things together. You, It's been a process. You're four months from your announcement. And I know maybe the thought process starts sooner. But you're you're still kind of like in the thick of it. No, I would disagree. Actually, I think I'm out of the thick of it for um, probably about two to three months. I was in a deep depression. Um, you know, a lot of it was just based on the transition, obviously, and um, other things going on in my life. But I've been playing football since I was seven years old, six years old, and so I have known nothing different. You know, my whole identity was wrapped around football and performing and, um, you know, seeking that validation, that false affirmation in a lot of, in, in, in a lot of those ways. Um, so when that was removed from my life, really trying to figure out how I fit into the world and truly who I was outside of it, you know, I had to come to grips with a lot of things um, and answer a lot of questions or ask questions that I didn't even know the answer to. Um, so... I would say I'm out of the thick of it. Uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm not naive enough to say that I'm done with it because I know how easy it is to, to slip back into that mode. Um, you know, I'm, again, I've been conditioned this way for majority of my life, so it's not. It's not going to be an easy transition. But I will say that I feel like I'm on the on the other end of it. I'm on the positive side of it, and I do feel much better than I have in the, you know through this process. It's good. Um, you know, when you talk about. Going through that confusion and/or depressive state. When, when was it? Was it before the 2018 season? Was it during the injuries? When did oh, no, all this that? Was the, the the depression. Yeah. Um, no, nah, th- it started probably six weeks after the announcement. Oh, yeah. okay. So it was a, it was a process. So it didn't happen before the announcement. Um. Because I feel like there's a decision-making journey that everybody goes through. And some of it is the athlete making the decision. Some of it is our bodies having to dictate the decision. And I know, I think it was after the Chiefs game last year, and you were going through all these injuries, and you got a chance to play. And you mentioned how grateful you are just to be on on the field with your team. Um, but you also characterize the 2018 season as a season from hell just because of everything you've been through. So I'm, I'm wondering if, at what point did you start thinking about the retirement? Uh, my second year in the NFL. That was 2012. Because when I was doing that piece with you about mental imagery, we talked about, we it. Talked about 2012 yeah. and how that was a really tough period for you. I think that if, if everybody is honest, 
with themselves. You know, no matter how much we boast about, you know, our abilities or um, this perception of confidence that we exude, you know, there's always this insecurity in the back of our minds, you know, of, of what we're really worth, what our value truly is. Um, and when you're in the sports industry, entertainment industry in general, you always have to be in the midst of it, of proving your value, of proving your worth. Um, and that's, I mean, that's not to say that it's, you know, outside of the normal realm of, of a career or a profession. However, it's, it's under a microscope and it's for the public to view and to comment on all the time. So you know, when I was going through those struggles in 2012, there were a lot of question marks, just, you know, how, how I wanted to live, what kind of person I wanted to be in this world, in that industry, um, and what kind of legacy I wanted to leave. And so those questions started to come up and really trying to figure out, um, you know, what the trajectory was. And, and it was kind of put on hold afterwards. I, you know, I, I, was, I think I was too young to really reconcile those questions and to really understand um, the mental process that I needed to go through in order to really come to conclusions um, on anything. Um, you know, so I... I I kind of put it on the back burner and we, we had success. We went to the Super Bowl. You know, we um, I went to another Super Bowl. I had some success individually. And then you get to a point where, okay, what's next? You know, and, and I start looking out on the horizon and then injuries start to pile up and my body starts to feel different. You know, you always hear the rumors or, or the comments from older guys about, you know, when you turn 30, your body just does something different, you know. Um, and it was true. I, I I woke up in the morning and my body was just different and I couldn't, um, I couldn't really understand what had gone wrong. Right. Uh, I think that's just the, the athlete mentality. You think you're immortal in some respects and you feel like you can just get up in the morning and do whatever it takes to accomplish your goals on the field or on the court or whatever it may be in your arena. And that was just not the case anymore. You know, I was, I was trying to find different avenues to reach that peak again and, um, never came to fruition. Uh, and then the injuries started piling on and surgeries started piling on. Um, and then I was forced to answer some of those questions again. You know, what does my life look like 20 years from now? Uh, what's my quality of life look like? Especially with me starting to build a family and wanting to be able to pour everything into that. You know, the, those priorities start to change. Um, start to look at things differently. You know, especially when... Um, there's just more evidence, more uh, medical studies being done. And so you, you start to question things. You start to wonder, like, what, what does the future hold? What does it look like? Um, so that paired with the fact that my body was deteriorating. Um, and, you know, to this day, I wouldn't be able to play football at the level that would resemble anything of my career. Uh, so, you know, it was a tough decision, but I had to make that decision. So you had shoulder surgery? Shoulder, knee surgery. And knee, yes. What did you have done to your shoulder and knee specifically? Was it arthroscopic? I mean, I don't even know how to describe it. Repairs. At some point, it, it will. I'll have to get a knee replacement. Probably both knees. That's it's a lot. What's so tough, just to like dive into this part with injuries, is that as an athlete, we're so used to using our bodies as a vehicle towards to propel us towards success. And you know, when you're younger, you're so used to 
being Gumby and getting knocked down and popping back up. And when you're 17 or Missile 18, days. I know, right? That's so good. Now you wake up and you sound like a Rice Krispie treat and everything's popping. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're walking out of bed. But like when you're 17 or 18, when you might have experienced those same injuries, I'm sure you did as a shoulder or knee. But then the difference back then is you just take a couple of weeks off or maybe a week off and then it just goes away. I noticed a change in my body. My junior year at Duke, it was uh, my shoulder surgery in August, my right knee, the real September 11th, the September 11th, and then October 18th was my left knee. So they're like, you know what, let's just, just do it all one sitting. And so to empathize with your situation, when you have them so close to one another, you're like, okay, I just have my shoulder. Like, am I going to be okay to use my shoulder so I can walk on crutches or to hold myself up for the leg? Yeah. It's a, a huge change. <laughs> it's a, it's a it challenge, is. I'm sure. It is. Um, and my wife had, had some comments as well, right? Because, again, I'm still an athlete at heart. So there's this mental, I don't even know what to call it, this, this, this animal within me that wants to go and just prove myself again over and over again, and even at the detriment of my own health. Um, but my shoulder surgery, uh, when the doctor came out, he spoke to my wife, and he basically told my wife, like, look, this is bad, and it's not going to get any better. And he basically said, I don't know how he, how he was doing this. And that really affected my wife. You know, it, was, uh, it, was, it was hard for me to see her in that much agony for me and then for me to turn around and say, well, you know, I negate that. I'm still going to go out here and destroy my body for the sake of what at that point? You know, I, I want to be able to hold my, my children you know, when they're born. I want to be able to play with my kids. It's strange because during my career, I never thought about those things. Those things were never a priority for me because it just, I didn't, they weren't on top of my mind, you know. But again, as you get older and you start to think about what the future looks like, I can't imagine not being able to pick up my children, you know, play basketball with my son. Like, I, I want to be able to do those things. It's hard for me even to say it now because there's still a part of me that's like, I want to I figure it out. You know, I'm, I'm a fixer. I'm, I'm, I like solving problems. And so this is a problem that I want to fix, but it's, you know, it's, I'm human. I'm flesh and bone. And so there's no fixing that other than surgery. And then essentially sitting your ass down is what they told me. Sports is, is unique in that everything seems very fixable. Right. Especially when it comes to fundamentals of technique, it's like, OK, if you're, you know, the route you're running um, a forehand to serve, you know, strength or weakness, you can go to the gym and you can tweak some of those things. But then when it comes to injuries and life, some things are like the only fixable aspect of that is acceptance for athletes that had to shut down their careers. I know for me personally, looking back at it now, I'm sitting here at 38. Like, had you asked me at, you know, 25, was I okay with that? I'd be like, yeah, I'm totally cool. 28, yeah, I'm a rock star. Like, good. I'm still working out. You know, my career is doing well and broadcasting, whatever. Like, when I started to change, and I, you know, you kind of mentioned where your body takes a turn, but I think mentally you also take a major turn too. And I, I feel like you're, you're experienced, or maybe you're way ahead of the game and you've already experienced that. And that's where I was like, oh, wow, I'm not okay with this. Like, I'm not okay with how my career ended. And I've been carrying this for so long. If you're going through all these injuries and surgeries, and on one hand, the Doug, the competitor and athlete is like, I can do this. I can go back. And actually, I'm sure 
99% of the sports world would be like, absolutely, he can come back to this. But then, of course, your wife, who's like right next to you and loves you, not for the athlete, but for who you are. And she's probably in your ear like, what are you doing? You don't have to prove yourself anymore. How do you like negotiate that? My wife didn't say that. Oh, she didn't? She didn't. She's always been supportive of whatever I wanted to do, right? But you know, some things don't need to be said. You know, the emotion, the, the facial expressions, just the worry, you know, I mean, that, that was, it was very apparent to navigate all of that. It was a challenge because it was all new to me, right? Like I'm, again, to your point, I'm this athlete who thinks that I can just accomplish whatever I put my body into and that I will win. And for the majority of my career, that's served me well. I was successful at that. But there comes a point when you start to realize, like I said, that you can't do that, you know, and um, <laughs> it it even sounds foreign to me now as I say it out loud because there's still a part of me that wants to say, no, that's not right. I can accomplish whatever I want to accomplish. And some in some aspects, that's true. But when it comes to my body, like if my leg is broken, I can't run on it. It's broken. Right. Um, so there's there's that part of it. The emotional aspect of it is more so of me, like you said, the acceptance part, coming to grips with my mortality, but also realizing that, you know, football is just a small sliver of my life. Um, even though it, at this point it's been the majority of my life, it's still only a small sliver of my life. And it's, and it really doesn't define who I am as a person, right? Um, I was kind of joking with you in the text message on the way up here, you know, you say people love me, but really these people don't know me. When I left the game, again, you had all this, this affirmation of, who you were and what your value was, but then when it's, when it's no longer there, you're kind of seeking it in, in other ways. And sometimes it's gonna be in unhealthy ways. You had a fumble, Jermaine had two drops that led to interceptions, and you were the two guys who helped rally this team down here in overtime. What about the way you guys overcame? I don't know, that's just what pedestrian average mediocre receivers do. Do you remember the morning or the day when you made the decision or when you just knew that, okay, I'm going to have to pull the trigger. It wasn't one day. It was this gradual process that I went through. My man Deion Sanders, we all right, huh? We all right? Yeah, we all right. We're going to go to the Super Bowl again, being all right. You know, when you're in the treatment room every day, trying to recover from something that you're basically not going to be able to recover from, it's just you have to manage the pain, right? Um... You know, you just, you have multiple conversations in your head. And uh, for the most part, I, I won those battles, but they just kept piling on and kept piling on. And to the point where it's like, okay, now you have to do something about it. Um, and then also, what is your quality of life going to be afterwards? So it wasn't just one thing. It was, just, it was the entire process. For some athletes, when they have not just one injury, but just a series of injuries, especially elite athletes, everybody has such a high pain tolerance. Like you, you just learn how to deal with everything, um, physically, mentally, emotionally, right? But then when you're dealing with multiple injuries to your body, it gets to a certain point for a lot of athletes, I think, where sport doesn't become fun anymore because you're just having to wake up and you can't play the game that you love to play the way you want to, or you can, but it's so painful that it just, it zaps the fun out of it. Uh, I know that's happened to a lot of athletes. It had happened to me 
where I was like, I just want to live my life without having to wake up and be able to go down the stairs like a normal human being or wear heels and not have to limp down the stairs. No, I remember a specific uh, event. We were at practice and it was just the receivers and we were going through our normal routine and we had to run some routes. And it was one route where I had to plant on my right foot and go to my left. You know, I, I shouldn't have been practicing. My body was done at that point. And I just remember in my head telling my body, like, you know, going through the mechanics of what I was supposed to do and, and visualizing it so that I could go out and do it. And my body just said, no, it's a weird experience. And I'm, I'm sure you've experienced it before. Where your body tells you, no, we're going to do it this way. <laughs> I tried to plant on my right leg, but my whole body turned and forced me to plant on my left leg to go the same way. And I, I couldn't do anything but laugh. That had never happened to me before. And at that moment, I think I realized like, okay, something's, something's different, right? Because this is, this and is, when not was that? What month. day, what month? It was early on in the season. You know, I, I was in the, I was in the back of the line. So I let everybody go before me. Um, and I just, you know, I, everybody's doing it the same way and I'm getting the visual of how I'm supposed to do it. And when I went up to do that, my body just wouldn't do it. It solidified in my mind that I had to do something different, right? That what I had been doing previously, although it was working up to that point, was no longer going to work. And, you know, it led me down a number of different paths to really contemplate. When I was prepping for this interview, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, you know, especially since this is a long, drawn out conversation. And I was like, well, I don't know how much prep I really want to do for some of these for some of these conversations, because it's so deep and there's a lot of personal stuff that's going on. And, you know, if I go catch up with a friend, I'm not like trying to dig up information on them. And it's like, you know, you want the person to tell the story and an authentic conversation. Yeah. Right. So that's why I like I have my nose. So I was like, I was. I was digging up information because <laughs> I didn't want to come in. Cold. You're reported. It's okay. Yeah. But then I was like, I don't know if Doug has talked to anybody. Is, is this your first interview since your announcement? Sort of. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I got <laughs> really nervous when I realized that. I was like, I don't know if he's talked to anybody. I feel very appreciative and honored. And thank you for, for opening up and, and sharing this moment. And so what, um, I don't know, I guess I just asked like, what, why? You know, I think that there comes a point in my life where I just want to be me, you know, it's really what it comes down to for a lot of the time I was in the entertainment industry, you know, yeah, it's professional sports, but it is entertainment. You have to sell yourself, you have to build a brand. And sometimes that's, um, you sacrifice your integrity to do that. You know, you're not really honest and truthful with who you are, who you really are because you're trying to put up this front of what people want you to be or what people will like so that you can get followers on Instagram, right? Um, and there's, you know, just been a process through this whole thing for me to come to the realization that that's not how I wanted to live. I wanted to be as honest and as authentic as I possibly can be. And, you know, that's not just for me or for, you know, the sake of saying, oh, I'm authentic. No, it's, you know, my children deserve that. You know, my children, my family, they, they deserve that. Um, and the closer I can get to who I really am and demonstrating that on a day-to-day -day basis with whether it's you or whether it's with somebody I meet on the street, um, then my family gets a better quality of me. Uh, and so, you know, when you asked me to do this, yeah, there was there were some questions in my head about what I wanted to say or or if I was going to do it at all, if you're going to ask me a question, I'm going to give you a genuine answer. We've had interactions before. We've uh, worked together before, and I respect the way that you approach things. And so 
to me was a no brainer. I appreciate you coming here. Um, that's why I had to get you the cake. Uh, <laughs> it takes a lot of courage and, and strength. The one to thing that, you know, that I, in a lot of ways, you're dealing your with um, your flaws and your pain that you've never dealt Please with. Please do have a piece of your ice cream is a melted. I saw your tweets. You tweeted this out several weeks ago. About Andrew Luck? We're going to get to that. I feel a certain way about that. And I, I know that you and I are on the same page about how we feel about that and how, how others have talked about his decision. But the one you did mention something about therapy and mental health. You said, nobody wants to talk about it, but I wish more people did. I have been and I still am seeing a therapist and I don't know where I'd be without it. To anybody who is on the fence about therapy, don't underestimate the value of your mental health. And what's crazy is, I think it was a 2015 Seattle Times article. You mentioned something about, they must have been asking you something about therapy or you know who you are. And you said something like, I don't need to go to therapy or um, if I did go to therapy, they'd just tell me things I already know. So my guess is, is that you hadn't started therapy at that point. No. My wife, God bless her, she forced me to go to counseling. Really? Yeah. And when was that? Uh, it was So it was premarital counseling. Um, so that's when I was first exposed to it. And you're right. You know, I, I mean, even to this day, there's still because of where I grew up, you know, the, the culture, this just the mentality. It's going to counseling is taboo. It's it's a weakness if you're going to talk about your feelings. But yeah, just to speak on counseling or therapy is one of the greatest decisions I've ever made. I mean, even from my family in, in some regard, you know, it's um, it's not looked upon as this tool. Right. Um, it's looked upon as a weakness. Um you know, and I would argue that it's it takes more courage and more strength to be vulnerable about who you really are. Showing that person in the mirror who you really are takes a lot of courage and, and strength to do that. You know, it, in a lot of ways, you're dealing with um, your flaws and your pain that you've never dealt with before, you know, and, and things that you've buried very deep down inside of you, which is very painful to uncover. And it, it it's multifaceted and it's multi-layered. And when every layer that you peel off, you experience pain. Um, but one thing that I've come to realize as from my own understanding, my own belief is that in order to really truly enjoy joy, to really understand joy, you have to understand pain because that's the contrast, right? Like if you had nothing to compare joy to, then, you know, it's, that's just your norm for me to go down that that deep into who I was, uh, it exposed a lot of the false uh, sense of who I was. And, um, you know, even bringing up the, the, the point of me saying that, oh, they already, they're going to tell me what I already know, which is true. But they also forced me to explore and, again, propose questions that I had never thought about before. It, it changed my perspective, not only about who I am, and what I want to be, but it changed my perspective on life, how I look and view other people, how I have more grace and more respect and more understanding and more empathy. Really, <laughs> that to me is probably the most powerful aspect of it all is that, you know, in order to love somebody else, you got to love yourself and not in a selfish way. To truly love somebody, you have to understand who you are in order to provide yourself with what is healthy and a healthy uh, definition of love. 
And it's the same thing for empathy. In order for me to be empathetic to anybody else around me, I have to be empathetic to myself. I have to understand my true desires, my true needs. And doing that, just going through that process of being more empathetic, my relationships got better. You know, um, I felt healthier. Uh, you know, I just, I, I feel like a different person. And as I said earlier, I feel more true to who I really am, true to myself. Uh, and, and that won't waver in any situation, whether I'm talking to you or, you know, anybody else. I want to be as, as close to that person as I possibly can be because I know that person is healthy, um, healthier than, you know, the other personas that I've been in the past. How you treat other people is how you treat yourself. And before I had started my journey of self-healing and, and self-discovery, I was, although I was nice on the surface, but I was very impatient. I was very walled up and kind of cold and super hyper-focused and driven. Nobody's going to get in my way. You know, I think that that's like the one thing, at least for my, my experience, that's been really cool. And so now I find myself being more patient with people. Um, it pays off, like you said, with my relationships, with my relationship with myself, now with a kid, I mean, I don't know if I could even be capable of being a parent had I not started that journey. Um, but I'm curious for you, there's usually a, a prompt or reason or a specific issue that pushes you to go and seek help. For me, it was my health, my coping mechanism for having to retire and shed that athlete identity morphed into an eating disorder that spanned over a decade. But I'm curious for you, was there something, an issue that you had been struggling with that prompted you to go get help? My identity. Mm. <laughs> I can't stress enough how much that industry forces you to, I, I shouldn't say forces you, but um, it motivates you to seek this false affirmation of who you who you claim to be or who you are in that space, which is really not really who you are. You know, maybe it's just it's just my own personal journey, but you know, from the conversations I've had with a number of guys in this arena, um, it's very similar. You know, for instance, you, you, when you first get into the NFL, um, you know, your family around you they 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 view you differently, even though you're technically the same person in some way. They view you differently. I know a lot of my family members, you know, they started to hear from family members I never heard from before, you know, started um, asking me for favors, asking me for money, right? And that's, that's not unique to me. That's, it just happened, no, right? Anybody all the time. Right. Yeah. And it's not, I mean, it's not just for athletes either. You know, when somebody no. wins a lottery, it's the same thing. And to go through that process and really take that value or that, um, that attention and attribute it to this performance you know, it, it all gets wrapped in together uh, and it starts building this identity that's based on that. It's based on this foundation of sand, really, because once that's removed, then the people stop calling you. You know, they uh, they don't care about how you're doing. They don't text you on your birthday. You know, all these things change, which is fine. But internally, as as a human being, um, those things start to weigh on you. You start to try to figure out and navigate through this maze of what my identity really was or really is. And again, starts to, you start to ask questions. And so I can't say it was one, you know, event that kind of like motivated this, this perspective change. 
It was just the process of going through therapy and really being vulnerable, not only to my therapist, but also to myself, right? right? And, go, and going back home and reflecting on the things that I had talked about and really asking myself, you know, I felt this way for a certain a period of time. Why did I feel this way? What was the motivation? What was the cause? And then going back to it, you know, and a lot of things were childhood related and never got addressed just because we were never taught to address them. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't, you know, it was one thing. It was just a multitude of things that had built up this this hollow identity that once was pierced because my wife pierced it, right, was truly trying to get to the grounds of who I really was because that's who she loved. In Florida, in Pensacola, it's hot. <laughs> and the humidity is like, you know, you're drowning. Um, I didn't enjoy that. And I actually quit my first year of football. I went back the second year just because there was something new during the summer. And I wanted to quit again, but my mom didn't let me quit. In terms of your identity being wrapped up in sport and being that put on a pedestal, if you will, did it start with the NFL or did it start when you were in Gulf Breeze, Florida, if that makes sense? There's levels to it, right? So when I was seven years old, I wasn't the the best player on the team. Through the years, then I became the best player on the team. And then it was recognized as I was the best player on the team. And then I started to be um, celebrated and put on a pedestal as the best player on the team. And then I got to high school and same thing. Then it's just another level. And then you get, uh, you know, you get scholarships to schools to play football, and then you're put on a pedestal again. And it just reaffirms this identity that you're building, and really has nothing to do other than with football. Um, so everything I was doing off the field, who I really was, what my passions were, what I really enjoyed. Like I, I played Legos. I still play Legos to this day. You know, not and not many people know that. Not that I share it, but it's just. <laughs> It's just the fact that there's there's a, a whole nother side to who I am as a human being, right? Um, and so, yeah, you, there's there's so many layers to it and so many levels to it. And even at this point, you know, I had to make a conscious decision that I wasn't going to continue down that path because I felt personally in, in, in my realm, not, you know, not stating for anybody else, but if I continue to go down this path, whether it be to continue to playing, playing football or to put myself into sports broadcasting, um, which I had the opportunities to do, but if I continued down that path, then my identity would still be wrapped in that. You know, everybody has to deal with it on their own accord. And I mean, even what I just said about you know when I got to the NFL, that was a whole nother layer, a whole nother level. Because not only did um, the affirmation of "Hey, you made it to the NFL," but now there's this dollar figure um, connected to it, right? And it's for it's it's out in public; everybody can see it. And so now. There's another expectation, another layer of, of identity that's wrapped up in that as the caretaker for your family, right? The head of the household, essentially, of, of not my household, but everybody else's household, because I ha- I'm the breadwinner now. Um, and there's expectations that came with that, unhealthy expectations. Um, but again, it, it was woven into my identity at the time. And you know, all those things bothered me at the time. I didn't really know how to navigate them, didn't really understand them emotionally or mentally. Uh, but again, being introspective and going through counseling and very being very vulnerable with who I am and what I want and how I feel, you know, I, I had a better understanding of why those things bothered me. And then now I'm able to have that conversation. I have the language to have those conversations. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's it's been multi-layered since I was seven years old since I first started this journey. What was your first exposure to sports as a kid? T-ball. 
Really? I, yeah, T-ball. I hated uh, T-ball. <laughs> I hated T-ball. Why? This is too slow for me. <laughs> how old were you? Six. Basketball wasn't a strong sport at my high school, so I can't claim that I was good at basketball either. It was just, <laughs> you know, circumstances. But, um, no, I, I loved basketball. Basketball, like I said, was my first love, my first passion. So, yeah, basketball, ran track, T-ball, of course, football. Um, and to be completely honest, I was just really good at football. You know, it wasn't something that I enjoyed at first. I didn't, in Florida, in Pensacola, it's hot. <laughs> and the so humidity hot. is like, you know, you're drowning. Um, I didn't enjoy that. And I actually quit my first year of football. I went back the second year just because um, it was something to do during the summer. And I wanted to quit again, but my mom wouldn't let me quit. Hated getting hit. And how old were you at this point? Seven. As any successful person in and out of sports... I think people find it very shocking when they hear, oh, my God, Doug almost quit football or somebody else Multiple almost times. quit. Yeah, it happens to everybody. You just got to dig deep to find those stories. So that's funny. You almost quit a couple times. And your mom was like, no, 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 no. Yeah, both times. Really? Yeah. Well, my junior year in college, she didn't say that I had to quit football. She just she didn't want me to leave Stanford. Um, but, yeah, when I was six years old, I quit. And then uh, – Came back seven years old, wanted to quit again, but my mom wouldn't let me. Um, again, wasn't the best player on the team. Didn't really, didn't enjoy football, uh, but once I stayed with it, kind of, you know, I grew up a little bit in some ways, and football became natural to me. And I was naturally gifted, and I was good at it, so I just followed that path, which is, you know, that's fascinating. It's fascinating, but it's also. Um, it was this trap that I kind of fell in, right? Yeah. Because I didn't, I didn't really have to flex other muscles. Um, you know, a lot of things were just geared towards playing football and not towards anything else. And so really being a well-rounded human being, again, my personal journey, not talking about anybody else, um, you know, I, I definitely think that uh, I've had to go back and kind of fix some of those things and work on some of those things because I didn't, I, I never focused on them before. Again, football came easy to me at the beginning. And so, you know, I didn't really love it. I didn't really um, enjoy it for the aspect of its artistry. Right. I just, I was being celebrated because I was scoring touchdowns and we were winning championships in my little league, you know, um, that's what I enjoyed. That's what I loved was the attention, was the affirmation, was the validation. And, you know, that, I mean, that, that continued up to the last day that I played. You know, there's even going through dealing with those injuries last year. You know, there's, there's a part of me and part of my ego that was fed because I was proving, I was poking my chest out, proving again that none of these injuries could hold me back. Even though they were in some ways, I was still able to be out there on the field um, and overcome a lot of those things. And that, you know, that has nothing to do with the sport. Um, it was just this validation, this ego-driven thing that I needed to prove not only to myself but to other people uh, because I, I wanted that attention. I wanted that validation. Uh, but when I, you know, now being removed from the game but also going through this process for a while now, I understand that, you know, I did truly and genuinely love the game for, yes, that part of it. But I also came to realize that there was an, an artistic value to the sport. One for the big ball. Got a man open. Ball is caught. Touchdown. Chad Ochocinco. And you know there's going to be a tribute here. My first kind of connection with artistic value was watching uh, Chad Johnson, Ochocinco, run routes. And his, his, 
his footwork and just the ability he had to get open. Him and Steve Smith were like, they were the ones. And uh, that's really when I was introduced to the, the artistic nature of the game. And that's when I fell in love with the sport of football. You know, outside of all the other auxiliary things of validation and affirmation, you know, I really enjoyed routing somebody up because, you know, that, that, was, that was my craft. You know, I, I loved the game in some respects. Um, I also hated it. And I, I don't know if I hated the game, so to speak. I think um, I hated the business that was around it. And that's not just the NFL, that's NCAA as well. You know, I think it's um, ironic that we're, that I'm discussing this now is California just passed a law. You know, It speaks to um, the demand that athletes have to place on their bodies, not only their bodies, but their mental state, their emotional state, sacrificing those things for the greater good of the team. Um, I was very resentful towards football, especially my junior year in, in college. It's just back and forth relationship that I've had with the sport that eventually it came down to the truth of the matter was that I love the sport for what it gave me, which was an opportunity to get out of my predicament um, and an opportunity to excel at something that you know really gave me an avenue to just focus on the craft. And I was good at it. The difficult part about even stating that is that the validation, the affirmation is still woven into that. You talked about your junior year at Stanford, and I know my personal journey and the struggles that I faced in college. Uh, it was not a, a piece of cake for me or a walk in the park. There's a, there's a huge level of responsibility that comes with being a D1 student athlete. Um, and I think it's important for us to have that conversation because, you know, there's a lot of young athletes out there and the kids are starting to play and specialize younger and younger and younger. And all they see is like the scholarships and these professional athletes and, and, um, you know, the, the attention that they get. Um, but it, my experience was very difficult. And the interesting thing that I've, I've, that's occurred while I'm doing this show is I get to talk to other athletes. And now that we're older and further removed, we're able to process everything that happened in college. And there are so many athletes, shockingly, that at one point either wanted to quit or wanted to transfer or had a really, really, really tough moment. Everybody has these experiences, and I thought about transferring. I actually don't know if I've said that publicly, but now it is, you know, um, so it's interesting. It's it's not it's not an easy experience. But I'm curious what yours were and what happened that junior year when you thought about calling it quits. So when I came in uh, to Stanford, uh, Jim Harbaugh was just hired. So the, the staff that recruited me prior to that, they were no longer there. So you know I was worried about my standing and my place in the organization. But you know they they still honored my scholarship. Um, you know, and, and I think there was a bit of that as well. I wasn't their guy, you know. Um, they wanted to replace me with their guys, which there's a lot to it, right? And I don't want to say it's just that because, yeah, I had some part. I, I'm human. I had flaws. I, you know, um, was a child at the time. And so, you know, I had my part in it as well. But to your point about, you know, most athletes going through this challenge and, I, you know, I I'm curious as to what it is in any other profession, right? But I do, I do feel like in, in the athletic world, um, because there's such a demand on you physically, emotionally, and mentally, 
um, to overcome obstacles that are seemingly impossible because not only are they physical barriers, but they're also mental and emotional barriers. And so you're attacking this challenge on three different levels. Um, it's not surprising to hear that more athletes have gone through that struggle. Going through it in college, my junior year, and, and um, going through that process of thinking that this could be the end of my football career and all the weight that comes with that, right? Physically, emotionally, and mentally. Um, but then being able to overcome that and then facing it again my, my second year in the NFL and kind of having that experience to say, okay, you can do this, but really not knowing because this is a whole different ball game. And, you know, my livelihood is at stake now because at this point I had thrown everything into football. So, you know, if I didn't make it in football, then I didn't know what I was going to be doing. You know, I don't even know if I have the language now to articulate what that, what that was or what that is, but it's not surprising to me to hear other athletes, very successful athletes have gone through very similar things. Yeah. I mean, um, and also it's been very cool doing this show and I've, I, my whole goal is to, to show the commonality, the common thread that all athletes experience from the lower levels to the higher levels and people that you may or may not know about. And I've actually interviewed a couple of my teammates in, in the course. These are people that I've known for, since I was a little girl, you know, and we grew up and played at the same level and we won a national championship. And I, we'll, we're sharing these stories. And I was like, wait, you felt that way too? Like, I didn't know that. And it's been, you know, 20 years right. later. But there's that commonality. Right? There is, yeah. And I think there's something to that. You know, yeah. I, I'd be curious if they've done any studies on that. In terms of what? Just the the challenges that athletes face, because mm-hmm. you know, typically most careers they start you know right when you get out of college, but for most of us as athletes, their career started you know well before that. Yes. And the pressure that's placed on you as a young person. Um, and the consequences that come with that for, you know, some kids that I've mentored that, you know, you just mentioned it, that it's so specialized now. And for some kids that I've mentored, they, you know, it's become part of their childhood. And in some sense, they really don't have what I would deem a typical childhood, you know, and it's, it's their career right then and there at a very young age. And, you know, what are the consequences of taking that route when you get older? You know, what, um, what deficiencies um, emotionally and mentally and physically are you suffering from because, you know, your career started when you were eight years old and not when you were 28 years old? Well, that's funny that you mentioned that because I was actually doing some research. There's a number of studies. I mean, over the past several years, there's higher incidences and um, reports of suicidal ideations and attempts by teenagers from 12 to 18 um, it's doubled over the last several years. There was another study in 2015. It's one of the first ones that I've seen where student athletes actually reported higher levels of negative emotional states compared to non-athletes. That was the first time I had ever seen that. And they were basically alluding to the fact that professionalization of sports and the increase of volume and training, that's causing anxiety. When, when you professionalize um sports at such a young age, you know, there's an emotional toll that comes with that because your worth, your value, your perceived worth and value is based on how you perform in that sport. And it's not based on unconditional love. Already as a young adult, you don't understand the world. You don't understand life. And you're still trying to, you know, 
in in some ways find a foundation to to supplant yourself to or plant yourself to grow from um, when that foundation is built upon conditional things um, I think there's an emotional issue there and it's 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 hard to articulate it's probably it's obviously very hard to measure just from my own personal experience when you know when when your identity is based on unconditional things you know it's hard for you to fall back onto something your foundation is not solid it's, it's built on sand what has been the interaction like with your family having that safety net as a kid and also stepping away from the sport because i think fans oftentimes forget that Although it's a decision that is for us or for you as an athlete, but it, it impacts a lot of people, especially if you've grown up playing sports, which most elite athletes obviously do. And it's a, it's a fa- family sacrifice, a familial sacrifice um, for your parents. I know you have a younger brother, right? Um, now your spouse. So what, is, what, have, what are those conversations like now with your with your family ongoing (laughs) it is tough because i've seen a lot of athletes struggle to walk away from the game because their parents and if they are males typically it's the father that's pushing the males to continue playing what has your conversation been like with your family complicated (laughs) i don't want that to come across as an indictment on my family right i think it's um It's, um, you know, as a, as a young man, as a, as, a, as a young man thrust into this industry, you know, I didn't have the answers. So how could I expect my family to have the answers, you know, who, who weren't actually physically there all the time dealing with the profession? They're on the outside looking in and for the most part seeing all the positive things. And so for them, it is a positive thing. Um, but I'm the one that has to deal with the negative consequences. I didn't fully understand it. I didn't know how to how to handle it, right? I didn't know how to behave around my family. And so, of course, how could I expect my family to know how to handle that as well? You know, I'll give you an example. I, I'm not going to say any names, but she knows who she is. Like, I had a falling out with this person because I wouldn't give them more money. Oh, my gosh. And this is a family money. member. It's a family member, you know, and... That's uh, that's not unique to me, you know. I've I've had to mentor guys in the locker room through this process a number of times, where their family members expect a certain thing from them. And this specific person I'm talking to now, we don't talk anymore because I wouldn't give them money. You know, that's that's just one example. There's multiple examples, and now at the end of the day, you know, there's still um, empathy in my heart because again, I can't expect people to understand all that comes with it, right? And there's a part of me that, you know, wants to explain it and to articulate it in a different way. But I know the the response is going to be, oh, poor millionaire athlete. Right? But that is it's part of it. And that's that's what I think that's what a lot of people don't don't recognize or don't understand is that, yes, I'm a millionaire athlete. And the problem with that is that I'm a millionaire athlete, you know, and that's and that's how you view me. Not you, but, you know, whoever's saying that. That's how you view me. Instead of viewing me as a human being with thoughts, emotions, desires, joys, pains, all of, all of the above that is, you know, makes a human being, 
outside of the fact that I made money in my profession, right? And that you know me as the athlete and not as a human being. You know, they're still my family. I still love them. Um, but just this world has, you know, created a, a, a necessity to depend on what is conditional and not as what, what is unconditional. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's just part of it. That is a side that I didn't even think about. I mean, I think I just assume that it's just the direct conversation with your anyone's parents or immediate family members of, is this the right decision? Do you do my parents or family members or mentors want me to keep playing? But it didn't even occur to me that there might be superficial motivations, it sounds like, behind them wanting you to keep playing. This whole thing is built on false validation, false affirmation, right? Um, you know, and, and yeah, it's painful because I had a relationship with this person prior to this. And, you know, now you question, okay, was the relationship based on what I could provide them, what I could do for them? And now that I don't provide that for them, they don't, they no longer have value for me, you know? And you multiply that a hundred times over, you know, I'm a human. I start to question my value and my worth in the world. Um, and so what's important is for me to find people and relationships that are built on the unconditional foundation of love. And we've seen a lot of athletes recently, it seems like, who are retiring. So it makes me think about anybody else. I mean, your teammate, Andrew Luck, and everything that he had to go through. That was, like, heartbreaking. And he was the face of the franchise. So I can only imagine, you know, and we've, we've, we have since talked, um, and he seems like he's in good spirits, but... I can only imagine his process, you know, because the weight for him was way bigger than I think it was for me, you know, and that's, again, it's just, it's part of it. Does it make it easier to make the decision for yourself to step away when somebody else is doing it simultaneously or around the same time? You know, when I see people retiring, when I saw people retiring in the past, I had a totally different mindset than I do now. What was your mindset? I mean, the NFL creates this this false macho-ness, right? Um, I wouldn't do it that way. I wouldn't go out that way until you are forced to really reconcile with some things that you never thought about before. You know, and I'm, <laughs> I'm dealing with a teammate, a former teammate now, who's going through that same thing, you know? We had a very extensive talk about guys retiring. Um, and is going to come to a point where he's going to have to reconcile that sooner rather than later. And I understand I can be empathetic to that, that mindset because I was once there, but point of all this saying is that there's a part of it where, you know, when guys are retiring, I was saying, I wouldn't do it that way. Right. Like I, I'm, I'm going to play till the wheels fall off. Right. That was my original mindset. Um, but, but then you have to define what is wheels falling off really mean? Wow. So what gave you clarity? Injuries, surgery, okay. um, you know, hearing what all the doctors had to say. Uh, and did they specifically say, hey, you, you should stop because otherwise, you know. They didn't specifically say that, you know, it was not verbatim, but the sentiment was there. Um, you know, you got to remember at the end of the day, it's still a business. The NFL is going to try to get everything they can out of you as long as they can. And then get rid of you. If you're in the mindset that you'll continue to give yourself even when you shouldn't be, they'll take it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to 
it's hard to talk somebody out of that who's in that mindset, you know? It could either be, I'm choosing myself because I want to keep playing the game, or it could be, I'm choosing myself and I'm going to dictate my life and I'm going to walk away from the game because now it's my time. Right. When you quasi announced your retirement, it was like three days after the, the Seahawks cut you. And it was a series, I think it was like 600 word letter to your younger self. When did you write that? I don't know. It had been a process for a while. So you had, had, had you spent several months on it? Not writing it, but just, you know, in your head, thinking about, you know, what, what would this look like? I didn't want to do a press conference. I felt that was, you know, too much. Yeah. Um, that's just not my style. But I felt like, and nothing against the fans, but, it, you know, it wasn't that I, I would say that the fans deserved anything, right? I felt like I deserved it, right? I was writing this story. I'm the one who put in the work. I'm the one who, you know, is, is going to suffer the consequences for putting my body through what I put put it through. You know, I deserve to kind of write the story, the ending, the way I want to write it. It's your journey, but I got emotional reading it. <laughs> and I don't know, only if you feel comfortable. I, I, I printed it out and I was going to read bits and pieces of it, but they're your words. So I don't know if you would feel comfortable. Just You tell me, you tell me what you want to, you tell me what you want to talk about. Well, I would like to, I just, I want to like replay the whole letter because I think it's, it's special. Do you want me to read it? Sure. Okay. So you said, I've always wanted to write a letter to my younger self. I never knew how or when I would write it, but it seems very appropriate right now. Dear Doug, Dear Doug I know what you're, you're thinking. thinking. Yes, yes, Papa did get, Papa you, that did get you that Power Ranger toy Christmas. you wanted for Christmas. He loves you more than you could possibly understand. Cherish the time you spend with him. You can't get those moments back. I wanted to write you this letter and tell you that you're about to endure one hell of a journey. You will feel emotional and physical pain you never knew existed. You will fail over and over again. But don't worry. All of it will be the reason why you succeed. Along this journey, you're going to make some incredible memories. You will make terrible mistakes, but they will teach you valuable lessons. You're going to meet a diverse group of people, and you will learn something from all of them. High school will be hard. College will be harder. It is God's way of preparing you for what's to come. You'll want to quit football during your junior year. Mom, of course, won't let you. Make sure you thank her for that later. Did I mention you'll fail? Well, your college career will end uneventfully in your eyes. You'll wish you could do it over again. However, you will have accomplished so many things many people only dream about. In your quiet moments, remember to be thankful. You'll finally get a chance to compete at the highest level of the sport you love. And knowing you, I bet you'll leave your mark early. During that time, you will lose yourself in that world. It's okay. You'll come out of it for the better. That first year will fly by. You won't remember most of it. What you will remember is a QB that taught you how to serve, the vet that showed you how to leave, and the best friend that showed you real love. The next few years will be filled with beautiful memories of close friends you will meet along the way, friends that will offer their guidance, friends that will push your limits, friends that will challenge your confidence, friends that will support you no matter what, and friends that will become your family. 
you owe a lot to these people. They will stick by your side when your passion turns into anger, when your drive turns into obsession. They will be poised warriors that you'll need by your side. And don't forget the coaches. There will be good ones and there will be better ones. You will come to appreciate the great ones, even if others don't. But when the journey finally comes to the end, you will reflect on what that little boy caught between Gulf Breeze and Pensacola, what he really wanted to be seen and to be loved. You will realize the affirmation you receive from catching a football won't suffice that little boy's desire. The praise from those that don't know you will be good for your ego, but bad for your character. But one day, you'll find a woman, a real woman, that will see you, love you, and force you to become a real man. You will owe her everything, and she will become your everything. Hold her close and remember the lessons you've learned along the way. Because the end of one journey sees the beginning of another. And guess what? It will be one hell of a journey. You will feel emotional and physical pain you never knew existed. You will fail over and over again. But don't worry. All of it will be the reason why you succeed. My watch has ended. The reason why I wanted you to read it is because I've read it to myself so many times already, you know, yeah. and hearing it from a different voice. Um, it's different. You know, I hope that anybody who read that, um, including myself, realizes that, that that is authentically me. You know, that's as many layers as I've pulled back, as I've tried to get as close to the center of who I am as I possibly can be. That's it. You know, and it's kind of relieving me of this burden that is my football identity and allowing me and giving myself allowance to become who I always was, but more so now. Um, you know, and, and, and still staying true to who I am, mm-hmm. you know, uh, through and through. And so, you know, I, I, I never heard somebody else say it. <laughs> so, uh, especially in all in one sitting, cause you sent it out in a series of tweets. You probably didn't say it out loud. You were probably just internally writing it. Right. Mm-hmm. So it probably sounds a little different when somebody reads it, it does. out loud. Yeah. Probably brings it to life a little bit more. It does. Does it feel okay? Yeah. I mean, you know, each each tweet meant something. You know, it wasn't um, this. It wasn't surface. You know, uh, again, like that, that's I'm as true to me as I possibly can be. And even the first one, when I say, "Yeah, Grandpa got you that that Power Ranger toy that you wanted," he'll love you more than you will ever understand. And is you know, it was it was that first sense of what unconditional love was. You know, I didn't I didn't appreciate it and I didn't understand it back then, but now I do. And now it means so much more. Right. And my grandfather was, he was everything to me, you know, from as early as I can remember up to this point, you know, and he, uh, he supported me and was at every one of my football games, every one of my sporting events. And 
you know, just like Kobe Bryant said, it didn't matter if I scored six touchdowns or didn't play. <laughs> My grandfather smiled and loved me the same every time, just as a reflection of, you know, everything I've gone through up to this point. It wasn't, it didn't resonate with me. It wasn't as powerful to me until I actually did the reflection onto why, what these emotions were that were kind of buried inside of me. Um, and so to be able to spill it out as authentically as I possibly could, you know, that that's me. And it's, it's, and the reason why I wanted to do it in, in the fashion in which I did, because I want it to live on forever. You know, I want my kids to realize who their father was, you know, and, and my grandchildren, my great grandchildren to know who their great grandfather was long after I'm gone. You know, yeah, grandpa was, uh, he was stubborn. He had his flaws, but he loved us authentically and unconditionally. Um, you know, and so I, I wish that there was more of a record of my grandfather and the man that he was um, and the impact that he had on me. So this is, you know, kind of a gift to him, but also passing that gift from him onto my, my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren. You know? It was beautifully written. So that's one chapter which has been written. Your next now has to be written. So what's next for you? What are you working on? A lot of stuff. Um, I like solving problems. And uh, I've been putting myself in the arena of where I can solve very big problems. And uh, I, I think I'm in a good spot right now. I, I, got, I got some things that I'm very intrigued and very uh, excited about. I was approached by a local company called Intellectual Ventures. You know, outside of all the other things I'm doing, and not to say that I'm not excited about those other things, but uh, Intellectual Ventures is a it's a venture capital firm that create as as simply as I can put it. They they innovate and create, and they solve huge problems. Uh, you know, global problems. You know, like I said, I grew up playing Legos. I loved building and creating and using my my intellect and my imagination. And I feel like I'm going into that world again. You know, I'm 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 an adult getting to play with Legos and be innovative and creative and solve problems. Thank you for so much for coming on and really opening up and sharing your story. You shared just a lot of a lot of deep personal stuff, and I appreciate you coming on and sharing. I thank you for the cake. Really appreciate the cake. (laughs) I think the most powerful moment of this entire interview by far was reading Doug's retirement letter. Saying the words out loud brought a tangibility to not only his retirement and the fact that football is really over for him, but also how much he's been through as a player, as an athlete, and also as a person. The one aspect that impresses me the most about Doug's journey, especially over the last few years, is seeing the empathy he's developed, not only for himself, but for others as well. And it all started with the question of, who am I beyond sport? It's an important question that all athletes must answer, but don't try to answer soon enough. big warm thank you to Doug for being so generous with his time and having the courage to be vulnerable and share his inspiring story. 
And to you, the listener, I thank you for tuning in to the next chapter with Prim Seripipat. And by the way, if you know of an athlete whose transition from sport is one that needs to be told, let me know. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Prim underscore Seripipat. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.